Welcome to What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East edition. I'm Josh of Primary Source, a nonprofit that provides PD for K-12 teachers in global learning. Learn more about us by visiting www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. This episode was made possible through generous support from Qatar Foundation International, another nonprofit that inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators. Learn more about QFI at www.qfi.org. One of the most significant conflicts in the Middle East is probably one you're not talking about with your students. In fact, it may not be one you've read much about in the news or even be aware of. We're talking about the escalating Cold War between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Look carefully, and you can see this rivalry lurking in the background of almost every major regional hotspot, from Syria and Yemen to Iraq and Qatar. In this episode, we'll be exploring this intra-regional Cold War, both by analyzing Saudi and Iranian motives, as well as by seeing how the two powers are involved in proxy conflicts across the region. Toward the end, we'll also offer some pointers on how you can use this rivalry as a means to address some widely held misconceptions about how international politics work in the Middle East. Finally, a quick disclaimer and point of clarification. As we hope most of you noticed, funding for this episode and many other episodes in this podcast has been provided by the nonprofit organization Qatar Foundation International, the U.S.-based branch of the Qatar Foundation. We'll be talking about Qatar, the nation-state, in this episode quite a bit, but we want to make it clear from the outset that the decision to include a discussion of Qatar in this episode was made independently by us and born out of recent headlines and the conversation with today's scholar. Neither our friends at QFI nor the Qatar Foundation were involved in the decision to include Qatar in this episode or what our scholar had to say about it. And now, with all that having been said, let's get on with the show. This is Episode 5, The Saudi-Iran Cold War. So it's hard to talk about the Middle East these days without the Saudi-Iranian rivalry coming into the picture in some way. And the, the big question is, how do we think about this? Why are these two states, Saudi Arabia and Iran, clashing with each other? In what ways are they clashing? To help walk us through this rivalry, we sat down with Dr. David Siddharth Patel, an expert on the international relations of the Middle East and North Africa at Brandeis University's Crown Center for Middle Eastern Studies. Dr. Patel is especially interested in the strategic role of religion in Muslim societies, which partially informs the way he suggests we think about the Saudi-Iran conflict. So I think there's three big ways to think about this. The most common way you hear is often the most superficial, and that's saying this is about sectarian rivalry. Saudi Arabia, of course, is a majority Sunni country, and Iran is a majority Shia country, and people see this as Sunni-Shia competition. I don't think that explanation gets you very far. Sectarian identity is constant, right? And it doesn't explain patterns of these states getting along, more or less, and then not getting along. It also doesn't explain a lot of the intra-regional dynamics. So Saudi Arabia and Qatar, for example, are at loggerheads. In fact, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are leading a a, a boycott, an isolation of Qatar, which is a Sunni state. Not just Sunni, it's also a Wahhabi state. It also doesn't explain why Saudi Arabia ends up supporting a lot of the less sectarian Sunni actors in the region and why Iran reaches out to Hamas and Islamic Jihad, Sunni groups. 
So sectarianism doesn't explain patterns over time and even a lot of the details of the pattern. The other two ways people explain the Saudi-Iranian rivalry is domestic politics. That this is about uh, monarchies and republics. That doesn't explain what's going on now. That was a good way to explain rivalries in the Middle East in the 50s and 60s. But what you see now is Saudi Arabia supporting republics in Egypt. You see the Islamic Republic of Iran supporting a very secular government in Syria of Hafez al-Assad's son, uh, Bashar al-Assad. So domestic politics gets you some way. The best way, I think, to understand what's happening in the Middle East is just good old geostrategic interests and politics. What you see are the two regional powers of the region fighting for influence in different states. To paraphrase, we have a Cold War rivalry developing in the Middle East between two states that are competing with each other indirectly without challenging each other explicitly. This is much like the way the U.S. and the Soviet Union competed against each other during the global Cold War in the second half of the 20th century. But why now? Why are Saudi Arabia and Iran butting heads so much? The big change we've seen is the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. The U.S. invasion of Iraq wiped away the Arab world's major check on Iranian influence in the Arab world. Remember, the government of Iran comes to power in 79 after the Iranian revolution. And then the Arab world in many ways relies on Iraq to fight that new government. And they do through a devastating Iran-Iraq war. But that military might of Iraq checked Iran. And what the U.S. war in Iraq did was it wiped away the Iraqi government. It wiped away the Iraqi bureaucracy in many respects. It certainly wiped away the Iraqi military. And it opened up Iraq for Iranian influence. That was the single biggest change in the past 20, 30 years that has led to the, the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia rising in heat. So after the fall of Saddam Hussein in 2003, Iran's regional influence was able to grow unfettered meaning that Saudi Arabia felt the need to step up to the plate, so to say. But why do the Saudis care? What's their beef with Iran? Saudi Arabia always played some role balancing Iran by militarily and monetarily supporting uh, uh, Iraq. But with the fall of Iraq, with the fall of Saddam Hussein, I should say, Saudi Arabia has had to step up and play a much more prominent role in balancing against Iran in the region. And you see this in Lebanon, where Saudi Arabia now is in some ways trying to limit Hezbollah influence in the Lebanese government. You're certainly seeing that in Yemen, where Saudi Arabia is leading a military effort in Yemen and trying to support a, an internationally recognized government. So you're seeing Saudi Arabia play a role they always played. They're just having to do it much more in the open now. And part of this is also because there's an expectation that the United States is not going to be as involved in the region as it was. The United States played a balancing role, balancing against Saudi Arabia and Iran, and in many ways, keeping Iran under check. Under Clinton and for, many, for much of the 1990s, the U.S. had a dual containment strategy where it contained both Iraq and Iran. And again, that policy changed under George W. Bush, where the U.S. invaded Iraq. And now there's a sense that the U.S. is retreating even more from trying to contain Iran. And this was part of the JCPOA the nuclear deal with Iran, where Iran gives up its nuclear program in exchange for sanctions relief. And so Saudi Arabia and a number of other countries in the region that feel threatened by Iran see the United States as backing off of that commitment to contain Iran, Iranian ambitions in the region. And so they're being forced to play a much more prominent role. 
But these are the two largest countries in the region in turn, these are the two most powerful, not the two largest in population, but they, they, they certainly have vast oil resources. They're also uh, very close to each other. And there's, they're, they're countries that have a lot of, uh, they, they clash in a number of a number of arenas in terms of oil prices, in terms of influence over uh, Shia communities, in terms of their vision of what a, 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 a what government should look like within the region. And they've been clashing since 1979, if not earlier. It sounds like Saudi Arabia and Iran have been butting heads for a while now. But what is each country hoping to gain? Well, regional influence more generally. So both the countries, for example, have businesses that want to be prominent actors in, in neighboring states. Both of these countries want to have influence over the regional politics of neighboring states. So they want to be able to influence what way various countries will, will move on certain issues. So for example, Saudi Arabia a couple of years ago, uh, more than a couple of years ago now, pushed what they call the Arab Peace Initiative where they proposed to Israel recognition by almost the entire Arab world and many other Muslim-majority countries not in the Arab world in exchange for a set of things, none of which Saudi Arabia actually had to do, but required the Palestinians and Israelis to make concessions. The Iranians very much disagreed with that and, and see themselves as leading what they call a resistance axis, still resisting Israel and in many ways Israel's very existence. And so things like that. Will Syria support the Arab Peace Initiative or not? Will Egypt support the Arab Peace Initiative or not? Those are things that matter for Saudi Arabian and Iranian foreign policy, and they want to have influence over those neighboring governments. Of course, uh, having business interests is part of it, having, having cultural influence, and some of it might be what you could call soft power, but I think uh, these geostrategic and economic interests probably explain it better. A lot of you probably teach about the U.S.-Soviet Cold War, or at least remember learning about it in college. You'll remember that a big part of the conflict was the way that the U.S. and the Soviets carved much of the world up into spheres of influence and allies. Is that happening in this regional Cold War? So what some people have called a Shia crescent, right, a strip of countries or a strip of territory that has a majority Shia population, that's probably not the best way to think about what's happening in the Middle East in the past decade. I think it's better, especially since the Arab Spring, to think in terms of an arc of weakness, not in a Shia crescent. What do I mean by that? Iran has been able to extend its influence into places because of state weakness, largely caused by the Arab Spring. So there's certain places in the Middle East where there was, there was always weak governance. Yemen, Lebanon. When I say weak government, I mean weak states. These are places where a, a state was not able to exert control over its entire territory, where there wasn't room for non-state actors, where political parties didn't have very strong connections or uh, the, Iran didn't have the ability to control what local actors were doing. What you see now is in a number of states, governments either weakening or in some places straight up collapsing. And that's where Iran has been able to increase their influence. The most important of these, of course, was Iraq. It's inaccurate to say that Iran controls the Iraqi government, but they certainly have influence there. They have a lot of economic influence there. There's a lot of Iranian tourists and pilgrims that are going to Iraq now. There's tremendous Iranian investment and economic interest in what's happening. And certainly there's a lot of militias that are operating in Iraq that have connections to the Iranian government. That's all because of the fall of Saddam Hussein. Likewise, what happened in Syria and Iranian influence in Syria went up dramatically because of the Arab Spring and the protests in Syria turning into a civil war. The Assad government came to rely initially on 
Iranian money and weapons, and eventually Iranian fighters, and then Afghan and Iraqi fighters that Iran brought to Syria to fight for them. Yemen's slightly different. The, Yemen was a civil war and still is a civil war, fought between domestic actors. But over time, you found Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates on one side, and Iran on the other side getting involved and helping, identifying, and supporting local, I don't want to say proxies, because they certainly didn't create these groups, but they're finding groups in these existing civil wars, in these weak states, who are willing to take monetary support and sometimes military support in exchange for some degree of influence. And like I mentioned, that, that it looks like a geographic arc. You see it from uh, Iraq through Syria into Lebanon. Yemen was always a weak government, but it's become more of a, of a playing field. The place you haven't seen it, though, are in the Gulf countries. There are large Shia populations in a number of the Gulf states. And Saudi Arabia and the UAE moved very quickly to make sure that Iran was not going to extend influence in these places. So the Bahraini uprising, part of the Arab Spring, was a good example of that. The UAE and Saudi Arabia sent in military troops and, and put it down and made it very clear that there will be no expansion of Iranian influence in the Gulf. There will be no expansion of Iranian influence to the Shia of the eastern province of Saudi Arabia or to the Shia of the United Arab Emirates. To see what this Cold War rivalry looks like on the ground, we're going to walk you through three case studies which we pulled from recent headlines. These include the potential political crisis emerging in Lebanon, the civil war in Yemen, and the blockade of the Gulf nation of Qatar. There are other examples we could have analyzed, including the war in Syria, which we discussed in our last episode. But I think these three examples will do a good job of showing you the ways that Saudi and Iran are vying for power and influence in the region without actually shooting at each other. First up, Lebanon. The key problem when it comes to the Iranian-Saudi rivalry is Iranian support for Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a Shia organization, has a very strong military component, and it was formed and fought against the Israeli occupation of the country. Just FYI, this was a war between Israel and Lebanon that began in the early 1980s. But what it did is after Israel withdrew, it maintained its weapons. So Hezbollah did not disarm, and it maintains an extremely powerful security apparatus and military fighting force. And it's used that now. Uh, it's used it against Israel again, uh, uh, controlling the border with uh, Israel. And it's used, uh, used it in Syria, in the Syrian civil war. So Saudi Arabia's involvement in that is trying to check the influence of Iran and Hezbollah. And Hezbollah is extremely influential. It's part of the Lebanese government. And it was part of this power-sharing government with Hariri. Hariri is the prime minister of Lebanon and a leader of a Sunni political movement in the country called the Future Movement. But while he was in Saudi Arabia in November 2017, he actually announced that he intended to resign from office. And then he retracted that announcement a few weeks later. If you're confused, you're not alone. So we don't know exactly what happened. Hariri was the prime minister and he ran this government that included Hezbollah in it. And Hezbollah is extremely powerful in Lebanon controls a number of ministries, controls a lot of the security forces. And Hariri announced his resignation from Saudi Arabia. And it seems pretty clear that he was under pressure, tremendous pressure from Saudi Arabia to restrain Hezbollah's influence, both in the Lebanese government, but also to pressure Hezbollah to pull all of its forces back into Lebanon. So why would Saudi Arabia care about what's going on in Lebanon? From the perspective of Saudi Arabia, it has lost again and again and again in the region over the past 10, 15 years. 
2003 was the most important loss. It lost Iraq and Saddam Hussein as a check on Iran. And everything that's happened in Iraq since the U.S. invasion has in many ways strengthened the Iranian hand in Iraq and minimized the influence of Saudi Arabia. So Iraq was a loss. It lost in Lebanon when Hezbollah unseated Hariri in 2011, and it certainly is lost in the Syrian civil war, where not just the survival of Assad, but the Iranian and Hezbollah influence in Syria is much greater now than it was before the civil war. So from the Saudi perspective, it has lost in the competition against Iran in all of those places. What might be going on in Lebanon now is Saudi Arabia trying to get into the wind column. Saudi Arabia trying to actually claw back some influence in a place that it's still able to do so because it's not able to do it in Syria anymore. It's not able to do it in Iraq. And so maybe the effort to unseat Hariri or at least to pressure Hariri to push Hezbollah out of some parts of the Lebanese government was an effort to claw back some influence again. But that doesn't mean we should discount the importance of domestic politics in Lebanon. So Lebanon's an extraordinarily complex country. It's a, it's a political system which is based on balances between and within these ethno-sectarian groups. So there's, there's, large, there's a large Shia community that has a couple political parties affiliated with them. There's a couple uh, Sunni parties. There's Christian parties. There's a Druze parties, and it's a very delicate political balance. And so, again, we can talk about Lebanese politics, and we can talk about Saudi-Iranian rivalry. But what we shouldn't do is characterize Hezbollah and Hariri and his future movement just as proxies of these two countries. Because there's dynamics going on in Lebanon between these actors that are independent of what's going on between Saudi Arabia and Iran. But those groups find it in their interest to get support and get backing for various initiatives from Saudi Arabia and Iran. So you can't understand Lebanese politics just by looking at Saudi Arabia and Iran. Okay, so to recap what might be going on in Lebanon, Saudi Arabia seems to be trying to insert itself into some complex Lebanese domestic politics in order to gain more influence there and check Iran's influence, which it exerts via Hezbollah. This is an unfolding drama, and we'll see what happens in the coming months. For now, though, let's move on to our second case study, the civil war in Yemen. What happened in Yemen is there was a civil war, and these two actors, these external actors, became involved in it. Now, just a little bit of background. Yemen, like Syria, is embroiled in a horrific civil war, albeit a war that is much less publicized. The key figure you need to know is a man named Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was president of Syria from 1990 up until 2012 when he resigned in the wake of some Arab Spring-inspired protests in the country. His replacement was a man named Hadi. After Saleh resigned, he allied himself with the Houthis, a predominantly Shia group in the northern part of the country that received some backing from Iran. It was an alliance of convenience between the former president Saleh and the Houthi rebels. Saleh, when he was president, he'd been president for decades, he had fought the Houthis. The Houthis were a rebellious group. But after losing power, Saleh became allied with the Houthis. And they were up in the north, and they were fighting the internationally recognized government of Yemen, which had moved to the south and was trying to regain the capital, but had been was backed militarily, and especially by air power from the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. You catch that? 
The new government that had replaced Saleh received military support from Saudi Arabia and the UAE, both of which began conducting airstrikes against the Houthis and Saleh. That is, until Saleh said he'd be willing to sit down with the Saudis and start negotiating. So the rebel group that was controlling the capital and most of the north fractured. And Saleh said he was willing to reach out to the Saudis. He was willing to come to some sort of agreement or understanding with the Saudis if Saudi Arabia withdrew its forces and stopped bombing. And what happened? The Houthis assassinated Saleh in late 2017, presumably for his willingness to work with the Saudis. Again, though, this all begs the question, why do the Saudis care about what's going on in Yemen? There's a sense that this was also an effort by Mohammed bin Salman, the current crown prince and future ruler of Saudi Arabia, to also win back some influence. If that's the case, it backfired pretty, uh, pretty dramatically, because not only did the Houthis end up uh, surviving the Saudi bombardment, but they ended up overrunning Saleh's forces and killing the former president Saleh. So where does all this leave us in Yemen? We'll see what happens in Yemen. We don't know what's going to happen to the forces that were loyal to Saleh, who was just killed. Uh, his son uh, tweeted the other day that the fight will continue. So it's unclear whether or not those forces and kind of cadres, bureaucratic cadres who had been trained and loyal to Saleh for, for decades, if they're going to stay loyal to his son. Uh, we don't know if they're going to strike deals with the Houthis. We don't know the extent to which the Houthis are going to basically settle scores and just purge. Presumably the Houthis are trying to consolidate their hold over all of the capital now. We don't know how Saudi Arabia is going to respond to the deaths of Saleh. We don't know if Hadi, who's the current uh, internationally recognized president of Yemen, but lives in Saudi Arabia, some people say under house arrest in Riyadh, we don't know if suddenly these ground forces are going to try to march on the capital and try to take Sana'a from the Houthis with Emirati and Saudi air power. We don't know if the Saudis are going to try to just bomb the, uh, the Houthis. So it's very unclear how Saudi is going to respond to the loss of Saleh. Events in Lebanon and Yemen are still unfolding, and we don't know what's going to happen next internally, let alone how Saudi Arabia and Iran are going to respond. We're just going to have to wait and see. For now, though, let's move on to our third case study, the blockade of the small nation of Qatar, which is in the Persian Gulf. This is an especially interesting case study, because unlike Yemen and Lebanon, Qatar is not what Dr. Patel would describe as a weak state, where the Saudis and Iran are trying to gain the influence. Instead, something else entirely is going on. I've been describing all of this as basically two big actors, Iran and Saudi Arabia, and then where they're competing in weak places. But remember, all these other states in the region, too, are also playing a role. And they're balancing. When one power is more powerful, they might be bandwagoning, moving on their side. They might be balancing more. But they're all going to be in this neighborhood for the foreseeable future. Those small states, they understand that they're between these two figurative giants, and they use that to their advantage. So, for example, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, they've isolated Qatar. And they're putting tremendous pressure on Qatar. Well, Qatar knows that it's between these two powers, and it plays them off of each other. So a lot of the Qatari money comes from this enormous natural gas reserve that it shares with Iran and jointly exploits with Iran. And so Qatar is one of these countries that's able to use that rivalry to serve its own interests. Oman is another country that uses that rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran for its own purposes and to get the best possible deal. And critically, it uses Iran to limit Saudi influence in its own politics, and it uses Saudi Arabia to limit Iranian influence in its own politics. 
This raises a key point when we study or teach about any Cold War, whether it's a regional Cold War like the one we're seeing in the Middle East, or a big Cold War like the one between the US and the Soviet Union in the 20th century. We can't just pay attention to what the big superpowers are doing. Rather, we also have to watch what the smaller nations are doing. So let's take a closer look at Qatar to see how small states navigate these kinds of situations in order to maximize their own interests and get what they want. The other members of the GCC, the Gulf Cooperative Council, led by the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, but also including Kuwait, have isolated Qatar. They've blockaded Qatar. Qatar only has one land border, and that's with Saudi Arabia, and that's closed. Planes are not allowed to fly from these other countries into Qatar and vice versa. So Qatar Airways, they're not, they don't fly to these neighboring states anymore. And so they've tried to isolate Qatar, to put pressure on it on a whole range of issues. So Qatar, of course, hosts Al Jazeera, this media station which is much more critical of events in the region and of this of the Saudi government than other media sources traditionally have been. Qatar has a very independent foreign policy relative to other members of the GCC. So when the Arab Spring broke out, Qatar openly supported the Muslim Brotherhood. They, they supported Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood coming to power in Egypt. That's certainly not what uh, Saudi Arabia supported. Saudi Arabia wanted status quo. They wanted Mubarak to remain. They certainly are opposed to the Muslim Brotherhood. So especially when it comes to Muslim Brotherhood, when it came to supporting the Arab uprisings in Libya and in Egypt, Saudi Arabia and Qatar dramatically disagreed with each other. And so a lot of this is Saudi Arabia wanting Qatar to get on board. They want Qatar to have a less independent foreign policy and to follow the lead of Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And Qatar wants to go its own way. It wants to have it wants less Saudi influence in its own country. And Qatar has a has a uh, an independent streak in that sense that it's causing it. And this isn't new. It's, it's had a, this this rivalry and competition with these neighboring states for for a while. And it's just. Uh, Saudi Arabia is trying to exert tremendous influence on them now. But these are these are extremely wealthy countries. Qatar, according to some measures, is the richest country in the world per capita. It, it has a tremendous ability to weather this sort of sanctioning and this sort of isolation. Okay. So we've explored three ways that the Saudi-Iran rivalry is responding to and shaping events in the Middle East. What's going to happen next? Where might be the next site of confrontation? The question is where can where else could Iran extend its influence? It seems to have limited opportunities unless governments elsewhere weaken dramatically. They have very few opportunities to expand into Libya, for example. One of the reasons why this looks very sectarian is because Iran ends up reaching out to proxy groups that it has some sort of connection to. It finds proxies that end up sharing a, a cultural or some sort of ideological affinity. And so it ends up connecting with a lot of Shia groups. And there's just not a lot of Shia in North Africa. So it had very little opportunity to do much in Libya. So Iran actually has very few opportunities now unless other states weaken dramatically. You could see Iran trying to get a presence back in the Gulf. You could see Iran trying to find Bahraini and even Saudi dissidents, bring them to Iran, bring them to Syria, bring them to parts of Iraq and train them. Trying to get those proxies to extend support and help open up new fronts in this rivalry. You could also see Saudi Arabia doubling down in certain places. Saudi Arabia, it could have gone all in in Syria and it didn't. 
it hasn't gone all in in the overall conflict with Iran. I mean, if it could dramatically increase uh, oil production. The U.S., they, some people say, won the Cold War by outspending the Soviets. Saudi Arabia could do something similar, but by basically dumping oil. They dramatically increase production of oil. That will drive the value of oil down pretty dramatically, and that would hurt Iran. would also hurt a lot of Saudi uh, economic interests and certainly hurt a lot of Saudi Arabia's allies, which is why it's unlikely to do. But if they wanted to go all in, they have, they have some options on the table. Saudi Arabia could also expand this to other places that Iran has interests, but Saudi Arabia doesn't have very strong interests. So an obvious place would be uh, Afghanistan. Um, but you haven't seen that yet. And it seems like right now, Mohammed bin Salman is biting off an awful lot. Right? Mohammed bin Salman is certainly trying to remake Saudi Arabia economically. He's trying to remake it religiously. He says he's trying to remake it politically. So there's a lot on his plate right now. The Saudi military, for what it is, is already pretty uh, engaged in Yemen. And so the idea of them opening new fronts would be difficult, especially because they have different tools. Iran Iran doesn't just, doesn't just bring money to a conflict. It brings real expertise in how you organize, how you mobilize, and how you train. Iran is able to take Syrian fighters, fly them back to Iran, train them in some camps, then bring them back. It's able to deploy basically NCOs to organize units and run them. It's able to bring Hezbollah, very experienced fighters from Lebanon, but also groups from Iraq, to Syria to train locals for them. So it's able to bring this, this military knowledge and expertise and organizational experience. Saudi Arabia doesn't have that. Saudi Arabia has, doesn't have a good track record of identifying local proxies that can fight. And it certainly doesn't have a military capability to, to train them the same way Iran does. It can bring money. It can bring attention. It can bring some logistical support, but nothing like the Iranians can. So in that sense, they have very different skill sets on what they can bring to a place. And what about an all-out hot war between Iran and Saudi Arabia? That was always the biggest fear in the U.S.-Soviet Cold War. Or what about an arms race? Some people believe Iran is still trying to develop nuclear weapons in spite of the nuclear deal. Is Saudi Arabia going to try and develop them too, to counter Iran? Is it likely to lead to overt fighting, to the Iranian and the Saudi Air Forces shooting at each other? It's very unlikely. I think you'll see this, these low-level interactions, these, these low-level proxy wars continuing for, uh, for, for, for some time. As far as we know, Saudi Arabia has made no moves to develop a nuclear weapons program, and it's hard to see them doing that in the short to medium term. But if Iran does develop a nuclear weapon, and that's not going to be today, it's not going to be next year, the big fear is that it will trigger an arms race in the region. Then you will see Saudi Arabia, you may see the United Arab Emirates, you could see other countries pursue nuclear weapons programs. But I think in the grand scheme of this competition between Iran and Saudi Arabia, the nuclear program isn't the critical thing. And I think the JCPOA and the Israeli and Saudi opposition to it is, is an indication of that. Saudi Arabia isn't just concerned about the Iranian nuclear program. They're more concerned about all the other things Iran is doing in the region. They're concerned about the Iranian Revolutionary Guard training forces in, in Iraq, training forces in Syria. They're worried about Hezbollah exporting soldiers and knowledge and ideology, not just to Iraq, not just to Syria, but perhaps to Yemen as well, and who knows where next. So it's not just about the nuclear program, it's about wider Iranian behavior. And this was the clash between Saudi Arabia and Israel and the U.S. on the other hand. 
President Obama and his administration saw the nuclear deal just as a nuclear deal, and they made it very clear. That's what it was. It didn't deal with all these other things related to Iranian support for terrorism, related to Iranian meddling in neighboring countries versus an Iranian bad behavior in the region. There might have been a hope on Obama's part that in exchange for sanctions relief, Iran would focus more on economically developing its people and dealing with its its own problems and not become involved as much in these other issues. But I think we have seen since the since the nuclear deal, Iran still is meddling quite a bit, is trying to exert its influence in neighboring countries. And this is what Saudi Arabia and Israel didn't want. They wanted a, a much larger deal or much more pressure put on Iran to restrain themselves in all these other areas, not just on the nuclear deal. That nuclear focus was an American initiative. That's what the Obama administration made as the key issue. And the critics of the Obama administration would say to the detriment of all these other issues on the table. So if a direct confrontation is unlikely, how will this Cold War end? It depends what factor you think is most important. If you think this is about domestic politics, maybe if you saw a change in the domestic politics of either Iran or Saudi Arabia, you could see a change. So for example, some people thought that one of the reasons why this rivalry heated up was because of Ahmadinejad and because Ahmadinejad, who was elected president of Iran, no longer president, but when he was president of Iran, it brought to power a faction that was interested in spreading Iranian influence through the domestic politics of other states. So Ahmadinejad in 2005 comes to power, and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and elements of the Iranian military are empowered then to go to Lebanon, to go to Syria after the civil war, after the Arab Spring, to go to Iraq immediately, and to spread their influence. The thing is, though, after the the rise of Rouhani, the current president of Iran, we haven't seen Iran scale back that. If anything, Iranian involvement and the IRGC's involvement has increased. And so it's unclear whether or not that domestic political explanation, at least in Iran, helps us understand how this would be scaled back. But certainly the the supreme leader of Iran is is old, Khamenei. We don't know what will happen in domestic Iranian politics after he passes. We don't know the extent to which the Iranian Revolutionary Guard can keep up this level of activity. They're they're really stretched thin. You could see a strategic withdrawal on the part of Iran. You could see a change in Iranian domestic politics that would bring to power a faction that wanted to curtail the influence of the IRGC, which would involve them playing less of a role in trying to spread Iranian influence. And what about Saudi Arabia? We don't know what Mohammed bin Salman's going to do tomorrow, much less next month. He seems to be the architect of intervention in Yemen. And so he doesn't seem to have an inclination to show restraint. In fact, if anything, there had been adventurism. But he's in his early 30s. He could mature, he could change. Uh, He may never become king. We'll see. So that's one way things could change, if you think domestic politics matter. The other most obvious way things will change is once these playing fields dry up. Syria is drying up as a playing field. Iran now has more influence in Syria than it did before the uprising. But the ability of Saudi Arabia to have influence in Syria is decreased now. There's very few places in Syria where Saudi can play much of a role. So that'll definitely change. Iraq is likewise. Iran has influence there, and the ability of Saudi Arabia to play much of a role there has gone down. Saudi Arabia tried. Saudi Arabia for a while was supporting uh, uh, Iyad Alawi, a Shia, by the way, but running a, a, a secular list that appealed to a lot of Sunni Arabs. 
And it seems that Saudi support for that list has gone down. Instead, if anything, you see Saudi Arabia reaching out to Shia groups in some ways in, in Iraq. So you could see them not militarily fight, but you could see them engage with different allies they hadn't before. But again, the rivalry, the rivalry will continue. Whether or not the Cold War goes back to a deep freeze, that's the key question. Lastly, how do you teach all this? Well, hopefully this episode has given you the necessary background info you need to talk about the larger context if you do teach some of these specific crises, whether it's Syria or Yemen or others. But another key takeaway in exploring this rivalry and how it's playing out in the Middle East is that sectarianism, that Sunni-Shia divide we always read and hear about in the news, well, that's actually not the best way to describe what's going on in the region. Rather, we need to talk and teach about states as being rational actors. So I, I do want to mention this idea of sectarianism again, because it's easy to look at sectarianism rising in the region and saying the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran is being driven by that. Yes, clearly some actors in the region are very sectarian, and you're seeing sectarian conflict in some places. But it's important to remember that you're not seeing sectarian conflict in quite a few places. There's a very large Shia community in Kuwait. There's no problems between Sunnis and Shias in Kuwait. There's large Shia populations in the UAE. It's a large Shia population in Saudi Arabia, which are not rising up the way you might expect if this was a general uprising of Shias against Sunnis or something along those lines. It also is important to remember that even if you see animosities and hatreds in a conflict, it's unclear whether or not they're a product of that conflict or were a driver of it. So in other words, is the Saudi... Iranian rivalry because of sectarianism, or is the way it's playing out right now, which happens to be in the domestic politics of weak states, is that actually driving the sectarianism versus being driven by it? So for example, when sectarian actors are being empowered by Iran on one side, and arguably by Saudi Arabia on the other side in Iraqi politics, is that being caused by sectarianism or is that producing overt sectarianism? So I think it's important to keep in mind that sectarianism, it's a its a very thick paintbrush, and it doesn't actually capture a lot of what's going on there. It doesn't explain patterns over time, and doesn't explain patterns over space, where you see it rise up and be important in some places and not in other places. You can also use your knowledge of this rivalry to help students better understand U.S. foreign policy in the region as it unfolds in the coming years, especially since there might be some pretty significant changes on the horizon. The other big key factor we haven't talked about enough is the extent to which the U.S. will remain engaged in the region. The United States, as I mentioned, played a really important role in containing Iraq and in containing Iran, and it plays an extremely important role in arming actors in the region. What role the U.S. plays going forward is, is going to be critical. Is the U.S. going to continue to use special forces boots on the ground in various places? Is it going to maintain this, the distribution of its forces across so many countries in the region, in Kuwait, Oman, in, in Qatar? Will, will it pull out of some of these countries? Will it go to more offshore balancing? It's not obvious, post-Obama, and certainly the age of Trump, what the U.S. posture is going to be in the Middle East. This conflict in the Middle East and the rivalries in the Middle East have a tremendous ability to pull the U.S. back in again and again. Obama was very clear that he was trying to pull the U.S. out of Afghanistan, pull the U.S. out of Iraq, and pivot towards Asia. 
And right now we don't know what Trump is going to do. I don't know if Trump knows what Trump's going to do and what position he's going to take vis-a-vis the U.S. role in balancing in the region. Um, We'll see. And that's where we'll leave you for today. Thanks for joining us and talk more next time on What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East. To learn more about today's episode in this podcast, visit www.primarysource.org slash podcasts.